Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Mom Mentality Podcast, the podcast that's made for moms of busy babies. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Gwyneth Jackaway with us this afternoon. Welcome to the podcast and thanks for having us. Thank you, Sasha. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for thanks for the introduction. Yes. Would you mind just introducing yourself? Tell us a little bit about you professionally, personally. Okay. So um, I guess I'll start with what's perhaps most relevant to your listeners, which is that I am a mom. I have a 20-year-old 20, 20 son, almost 21. Um, <clears throat> so I, of course, remember the baby days. Uh, and even though it was almost two decades ago, it feels like yesterday. I'm also an educator. Uh, I, for many years, I was a college professor with an area of specialty in um, communication technologies and the impact of new media on society. And so I spent many years uh, teaching college classes about uh, the role of the media in our lives. And I'm also a longtime meditator. Um, and I'll explain in a moment how those things have come together. Um, I left the college classroom a few years ago to try to make a bigger difference um, because you know, in the college classroom, you're only talking to 20 year olds. And I wanted to touch more people's lives and not be so abstract and theoretical and you know, offer things that could make a difference since the media plays such a central role in, in our lives now. And so in recent years, I brought together my interest in mindfulness and meditation with my interest in the impact of new media. And I'm now trained as a digital wellness educator and a mindfulness instructor. And so I offer workshops to um, schools and parents and families about digital wellness, how we can live in a more healthy and balanced way with our technologies. Um, and I also am an educational consultant for Carrots and Cake, uh, a company that produces a wonderful uh, parental control app for parents to put on their iPads and phones um, to help their children make some balanced choices about media use. And I can tell you more about that later. For sure. Oh gosh, this is going to be a great topic and area for discussion. So first of all, I would just love for you to be able to share how mindfulness has played such a role in your own personal life as a mom and then as a working professional, trying to balance those two things together. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I'm, I'm happy to. Um, so I started meditating when I was in my 20s, um, going through the various kinds of personal challenges that people in their 20s often do. <laughs> Growing up, it's not always so easy. And so I found my way to meditation um, and mindfulness in particular, which is um, a particular style of medica meditation, which is really about just being present in the moment. Okay. without judgment and without resistance and being open to the actual experience that we're having and staying right here, be here now. Um, and it made a tremendous difference in my life. And I've been a student of mindfulness ever since. And even now, after uh, many decades of practice, I continue to find it goes deeper and deeper, the more I learn. So, and you know, this is a practice that's thousands of years old. And of course, many spiritual traditions have meditation as a piece of the 
overall set of spiritual practices and there's a reason for that right you know the the answer lies within as cat stevens put it that's right so i'm very very grateful that i've had this as an aspect of my life um i came to motherhood late um so i was you know busy living a single life when i was younger and mindfulness helped me uh navigate that whole journey <laughs> And then once I became a mom and I was a working professor, that's a lot to um, balance. And I'm a single mom, so a lot of responsibility. And you know, just having a practice of checking in with yourself every day, even if it's only five minutes, people might say, oh, I don't have time. You've got five minutes. You could shave five minutes off your social media use. You know, we all have mm -hmm. five minutes and if you, create a space for yourself every day. Just check in, how am I doing? Make some breaths, ground in your body. It can make a huge difference. We get all uh, caught up in our minds with all kinds of stories. And um, in the end, the only thing that's actually happening is this moment, right? Not the past and not the present and not the future. Yes. <laughs> not the, and, you know, a lot of people are walking around in the past and in the future and we miss this moment altogether. And Maybe you haven't gotten to that point yet, but there comes a point where the birthdays just start racking up and it's another decade and it's another decade. And you're like, when do you actually get there? Right. Because, but actually, we're always there, which is always now. And it's always just now. <laughs> what was the hardest part when you first started that? Learning how to sit still. I was, um, so I'm a New Yorker. I'm coming to you live from Manhattan and, um, you know, I'm sitting here with my cup of caffeine, which is never far away. And, <laughs> you know, I was a go, go, go kind of girl. Um, some of that was youth, but some of it was just my natural energy. I'm a high energy kind of being, and I was very much so when I was young, always, you know, either just lots going on. Mm -hmm. And learning, yes. how to sit still, learning how to sit still was hard. I was a runner, I was an athlete. I, at that time, I found yoga too slow. <laughs> yoga, it's too slow. I want to run. I want to jump. And I think that different kinds of practices suit people at different life stages. So for some of your listeners, if it's hard to sit still, um, the slower martial arts like Tai Chi and Qigong can be a way to oh, sorry, give your body something to do <laughs> while you're trying to be present. Love that. But for me at first, it was learning how to sit still, just be, just breathe. And it's hard. Um, that's why they call it a practice. You have to keep practicing. Yes. And what, what motivated you to keep practicing even when you face those initial challenges? Of, because I know even for me, it's like something that as a licensed therapist and it's like being working with clients and trying to teach clients mindfulness and even myself practicing you said it is very much a practice i continually have to work on mindfulness and bringing myself to the present moment and even just acknowledging this is how i feel this is where i'm at right now instead of going back and thinking about all my mistakes or how I could have done things better. And then also forecasting the future and just be like, okay, let's just be here right now. And I think even for myself personally, now that I've had kids, I have to practice it more than ever because 
time just seems to go by so fast. And our, our lives, my life is completely chaotic all the time. Right. And so being able to sit still and be in the present moment, that is extremely hard. So what motivated you to keep going to continue to practice despite the challenges and the difficulty? Um, well, this may sound like a funny answer, but um, I now see it this way. I was gifted, air quotes, for those of you who are listening on. Yes. <laughs> on podcast, I was gifted with a strange chronic pain condition in my 20s, which I have now come to understand. I mean, I was living in an out of balance way in a bunch of ways, but in terms of my own personal journey as a spirit, you know, as a being, <laughs> I needed a wake up call mm -hmm. that the way I was living wasn't working. And so I was having some chronic pain, which um, has been a, a part of my life ever since in various parts of me. I generate pain. Fortunately, I have not yet generated anything more serious, but pain is physical pain is an ongoing part of my life. And I had a very um, helpful doctor once say to me, I don't think that we can help, that traditional medicine can help. This was decades ago. Um, when it was still a little unusual for a doctor to say something like that, right? Yes. They don't always admit that they can't help. And he said, you might want to try meditation. And, you know, it didn't help overnight. But the first thing it taught me was that it, I could have a different relationship with the pain. And that's really a whole other podcast. Yeah. But I'd love um, to get into I, was, that. I was motivated by my own distress and by the ways in which parts of my life were not working. And I had always been a very disciplined person in terms of my academics. I was very athletic. I know you're very involved with fitness. I'm less so now that I'm older, but I had the motivation, the motivation skills already. I knew what to, what it takes. You know, like, I'm sure you could speak to yes. this. You want to lose, you want to lose weight. You want to get in shape. You know, there's days you don't want to go to the gym. It's too bad. You know, like if you're trying to reach that goal, you do it. So I had, the discipline skills, and it was a question of transferring them to meditation. And once I started to see some results, that of course helped as it does when you're dieting or exercising. And then what I would find is if I would skip a day, this was back when I didn't have a child, <laughs> you know, I would notice the day would be off. It would be like not brushing your teeth, you know, it's like that in your mouth. Yes. And so I started, and I certainly, I, you know, I can't claim that my meditation practice has always looked the same or it's always happened in the same way, but I always return to it. Sometimes, you, you know, just like with dieting, sometimes you, you know, you cheat or you <laughs> make yeah. different kinds of choices and then you have to find your way back. And that's part of the practice too. I love what you said is like that inner, this inner skill set. And you even had said before that you're like, everything exists within you. And I, I believe that so much. It's like, we just have so much potential that's lying within us that we have to be able to tap into. And so you even having, knowing it's like, okay, I have this skill set, I have this discipline, and I just need to be able to apply it to another area of my life and then stay consistent and do it beyond the days that I, I don't feel like it. Because there are going to be plenty of days you don't feel like it. 
there's plenty of days we don't feel like parenting, but we have to do it anyway. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> we'll be honest here. I <laughs> think that's what oh, it is. And absolutely. You had shared with me before that your son is actually on the spectrum. And so when you became a mom and just being able to, to know, and I know so many other women that face the challenges that come along with that. I mean, it can be rough and it definitely tests our patients in so many different areas. How did mindfulness help you cope? How did it help you deal with and have that relationship, a better relationship, I'm sure with your son? Right. So um, I know you shared with me that your son is three, so he had an early diagnosis. And so the same with my son, he was diagnosed at two. So of course, you know, as I'm sure you recall, that can be very painful and it's very shocking and it, it's scary. And, you know, generally, unless people have already, already have family members on the spectrum or close friends, it's, it's this unknown, it's this, a word that sounds scary. And, mm -hmm. Um, so I went through a challenging time, you know, in, in adapting to it, but even then it's like, okay, be here now. This is what's happening right now. I want to resist it. I want to push it away. I want to fix it. I want to change it. But actually at this moment, this is the reality. And, you know, uh, it's certainly my mindfulness helped both before and after his diagnosis with just being with him, like nursing him, holding him, you know, all of the chaos of babyhood, you know, just come back to center, come back to center. You feel yourself, you know, when I would feel myself feeling overwhelmed, take a breath, you know, it's always, there's a place in us that's always available and it's one breath away <laughs> and it's hard, you know, for people who've not experienced the mindful place, they may not know like, well, where is it? How do I get there? And that's mm -hmm. why it's about practice. And once you, sort of find it, that place of peace, a place of calm, then in the midst of chaos, you can, you can just, okay, deep breath, let me come back to center. So, and then as my son got older, and as I'm sure you're aware, kids on the spectrum, especially depending on how much language they have, which at three, even a neurotypical child is not always that verbal yet, they have trouble communicating. So they yell and scream and hit things or hit you or bang themselves against the wall or, you know, throw, like, I'm yes, all of it can tell stories, right? Yes. So then they're having, they're having a temper tantrum and what's very tempting because, you know, we're animals with a nervous system and an amygdala and a brain that reacts to outside stimulus. It can be easy to start, escalating with them. So they're yelling and then, you, you know, the parent starts to yell or the parent starts to cry or the parent, you know, loses um, emotional self-regulation. And if you lose your emotional self-regulation, the child feels that and then you bounce off each other. Yes. So um, one, and I, you know, uh, I know that in your space of um, parent education, uh, there's, there's a variety of theories about parenting. And so, you know, there's a whole school of thought of hitting children. And it's, you know, certainly I come from the place that it's not a good idea. And it's certainly not a good idea with kids on the spectrum because you're not going to hit the autism out of them. <laughs> yeah. Right. 
the brain is wired exactly. differently. And it's not their fault and they're not doing something to annoy you, especially when they're little. They just, they don't have that self-awareness or self-control. So what I used to do is put myself in timeout. If my son was really upsetting me, <laughs> Yeah. You know, and that's like more when he was five or six and not able to fall off a chair and hurt himself, you know. But by the time he was, you know, that level of childhood, like kindergarten through third or fourth grade or whatever, I would just, I would say, okay, I'm going to go sit in the other room and take a few breaths and you play with this thing. Or... Yes. So that's, that's one answer to, you know, that's a whole conversation we could spend the whole hour on that. <laughs> uh, I love that. Even you says like, I put myself in a timeout. And I think that is so important because as moms, we feel guilty if we need a timeout and we feel bad about ourselves that it's like, my kids a lot and I need some time away from them. And it's like, oh, we're not supposed to feel that way as moms, but it, shaking her head no over here. I'm like, no, it, like it's okay to put yourself in a timeout. And even with your meditation practice and being able to just have five minutes, if that's all you have to give, it's like five minutes counts. Yep. I love that. That's great. I think this is even a great segue into, so the parent timeout, I've taken timeouts for myself mm -hmm. and I am I'm Zayman is nonverbal. So we deal with all the chaos and we have these meltdowns in these moments. And so even in public and people don't understand. And as I said, it's a very special and different dynamic, but at home, and this ties into your area of expertise. So at home, if I need a mommy timeout, I will give him his tablet. Or I'm a mom that actually works from home remotely. And so this is why even your area of expertise drew me in so much. Because a lot of times that tablet, when he's home with me, I mean, acts as this little babysitter, device babysitter for a moment. So it's like, what's your thoughts on, you know, what what's a good limit? What How much screen time should our kids get? That is, and then when is it impacting them in a negative way? So I have so many questions, but. I just want you to be able to share. Great. Thank you. Um, so I hear you. And yes, these technologies can serve a very valuable and useful function for parents who are, um, need a little break. There are many benefits to the technologies for the young people. And like anything, uh, moderation is a really great um, first word to add into this conversation. So it's not a question of a specific number. Okay. It would be like saying, how many hours a day should you read? You know, if you read all day, that's actually an, a life out of balance. You might learn a whole bunch of things, but you're not interacting with other people. You know, it's by definition a solitary activity and it's not even mm -hmm. interactive, which the digital technologies are. You're not getting exercise. You're, you know, you could read outside, but you're certainly not running around and enjoying the outside world. So, you know, and as you know, too much exercise is not a good idea either, right? Uh, people who get sort of addicted to exercise and the endorphins of exercise that, you know, can start crowding out the rest of your life. So I don't 
feel comfortable giving specific numbers because it also depends a lot on the content. <laughs> okay. So not all digital content is created equal. But people say things like how many screen time hours as if what matters is the time spent, not the content consumed or engaged in. More quality. So, yeah, quality. So, and it varies by age. As, as children's cognitive abilities um, develop and they develop new kinds of skills, various new kinds of content opens up to them. And, you know, what makes sense for a three-year-old wouldn't make sense for a 10-year-old. So, right. And then every three-year-old is different and every 10-year-old is different. So people who try to give a fixed number, uh, you know, I understand that some parents want just keep it simple, give me a number, but that's, it's not really realistic. Yeah. So as I mentioned, um, I'm part of the team at Carrots and Cake. It's um, a company that produces a parental control app that um, parents can download and put on their iPad or their phone. And it does a few uh, wonderful things. So for a parent like yourself who works at home or any parent who just needs a little break or you're as you say, in public, and you want to keep your child calm, and you know it doesn't have to be a, a child on the spectrum. Neurotypical children have tantrums. Public too. So, if you, you know, look around nowadays, every kid at a table is on a tablet or a phone. Well, and that helps in restaurants, right? And it helps in airplanes, and it helps on you know public transport, or if you're going for a long car ride. There's places where, you know, play situations where that can be very useful. But if you just, uh, if when parents simply, again, air quotes, hand the pad to the child without any restrictions on it, it's basically like letting your child lose in Times Square. Especially. <laughs> Does not sound safe. Ponder <laughs> that, right? And Times Square is, is safer than it used to be because I'm a longtime New Yorker, but, you know. There's lots of adult things in Times Square, and there's levels of stimulus that might be hard for certain kids' ner nervous systems. Um, plus, they may not always be engaging in content that helps them grow and develop in healthy ways. So the reason uh, for the name of Carrots and Cake is that, you know, age-old parental advice, finish your vegetables before you have dessert. So carrots, it. the carrots. I do too. The carrots and the carrot, carrots and cake is uh, meant to refer to educational app, apps that you can uh, download onto your phone. And we have uh, lists of apps that suggest to people just you know recommendations for various age groups. So the parent downloads the educational apps. There are some that out there that are free, and there are some out there that you know involve a small. But things like you know PBS Kids or Duolingo, you know that are um, wonderful learning apps. Um, and then you set a timer and you set it up ahead of time and the, the setup's pretty easy. You say, all right, my child needs to have, let's say 10 minutes of uh, Sesame Street and 10 minutes of Duolingo Spanish or whatever language you want them to learn about uh, or whatever learning app. And then after that, it unlocks the cake portion and you and, and it, for older children, the children can be part of deciding what the cake is. So you give them some agency and that helps a lot. 
um, something they really liked. So you say, okay, you can go on, you know, YouTube for kids or um, Roblox or whatever it is you like, and then they get a fixed amount of time. And then it's done. You can't then it's that, you know, it gives them a countdown. You have five more minutes, four more minutes, et cetera. And then it just stops. And then, you know, you, when they're little, you can kind of play dumb and say, oh, well, that's, that's it. The pad needs to go to sleep or whatever. Yeah. But, or, you know, and as you get, as they get older, you can start to explain this is like dessert and we don't eat dessert all day and it's a wonderful thing, but you know, we need to do other things with our day. Um, and you start to teach them that just like a TV show comes to an end and a book comes to an end, your time on the tablet ends. <laughs> and the I thing about, so. the thing about digital media that we've gotten used to is it's always, it's always on, it's always there. It's the bottomless bowl, the endless scroll, you know, it's not like you can ever get to the end of Instagram. Do you ever think about that? There's no end. That's There's no end. Our news feeds, there's always more, right? And now we get into the economics of all that, which is that these platforms are designed to keep you on as long as possible uh, to promote engagement, as they say. <clears throat> Why? So that they can gather more data on our consumer behavior and our interests so that you can see ads that seem magically to be exactly what you're interested in. <laughs> and of course, Somehow. It's not at all an accident. And so they want you to stay on as long as possible so they can be tracking everything you're doing and then feed, feed you to the advertiser. And this is another reason that parents, um, it's important for parents to be very mindful about turning, off, turning on all the privacy settings when their children are scrolling because the device is picking up whatever's activity is on there. And um, eventually, you know, it's not going to happen with your three-year-old, but eventually kids learn to type their name and they see a, you know, they see navigate to some window that asks them for their name and address. And, you know, that may not be something that you want them to That's do. Scary. So carrots and cake also serves as a kind of, um, it helps take over the role of technology superego <laughs> or technology uh, security guard. So you don't have to always um, be drawn into power struggles. Parents are often in power struggles with their kids to try to curtail or limit, and uh, partly because of the stage of cognitive development that children are in, it's very difficult for them to deal with those kind of limits being put on them because it's the the prefrontal cortex, which you probably know about, is the part of the brain that um, controls self-regulation and logic and limits and self-control. And that's not done growing till they're 25. So um, if we all look back on our youth, we might see examples of that, right? So we thought we were grown way before we actually were. <laughs> exactly. So to say to an eight-year-old, well, just put the, the pad down. It's not that simple. They're not, it's not just you versus them. It's you versus Silicon Valley and Madison Avenue and Wall Street. And those are powerful forces. And they're also up against our, um, the neuroscience of the brain, which I can tell you more about. Oh my gosh. I really like what you said that we have to be, it, it acts as this little regulator 
like I said, for us and that they can't completely understand because we want to say, oh, you know, stop doing that. And it's just not that simple. Yeah. Especially since we give them the technology. So that's a very complicated dynamic. Like, here, this is a pet. Now I'm taking it away. Like, what? <laughs> you know, or here's a present. Stop using it. That's very, uh, so, you know, that's a conflicting set of signals, especially mm -hmm. for a small child. And then there comes the other important issue, which is when kids look at their parents, you know what they often see? Parents looking down at their phones. Yes. or their tablets, or their computers. So if parents are saying, put your phone down, and kids are seeing adults everywhere with their face in their phone, what are they supposed to think about that, right? What do they think about that? I mean, well, I'm, I'm guilty of it. Right, so, uh, <clears throat> well, it's hard to ask, you know, an eight-month-old <laughs> or your yeah. three-year-old, but and it, we're only starting to gather data on this, right? Because these technologies are less than 20 years old, which is kind of remarkable how quickly they, um, between the smartphone and social media, none of this was around 20 years ago. And now these technologies have blanketed the planet and people spend surprising numbers of hours per day engaging with these, right? So one thing that we do, we know already about the brain development for small children is that they need eye contact and they need the turn taking of linguistic acquisition. So fancy word for learning, speaking, right? Yes, so, yes. You, um, so for, I'll just talk for a moment about a neurotypical child. I know that it's um, different with nonverbal kids on the spectrum, but for a neurotypical child, um, you know, the brain is wired for language and they're gonna learn whatever language they're hearing in their environment, which is such an incredible thing about the human brain. It is. Right, but they need to be spoken to and they need to have the experience of the back and forth turn-taking of conversation. So I speak and I stop and you speak and we're looking at each other. And if in the middle of this podcast, I just like turned away <laughs> and I'm kind of talking to you but I'm not looking at you, that's, confusing, right? And one of the th things that we are starting to see with teenagers is they're uncomfortable with face-to-face -face conversations because their social lives are completely um, asynchronous. Or maybe it's synchronous, but it's not face-to-face. -face. Right. Well, life involves needing to talk to other people, right? So, and if you go out in public, I don't know what it's like where you are. Um, and I know for a lot of areas of the country, people live in their car, you know, spend a lot of time in cars. But in New York City, where our lives are not about driving, you know, you see people walking on the sidewalk, looking down, people crossing the street, looking at their phones, people on the subway, which may be more understandable, looking at their phones. I've seen people riding bicycles with headphones, looking at their phones. I don't know how Everybody, they do it. everybody is kind of withdrawing into this um other dimension <laughs> you know cyberspace so one way that you know one thing we should be concerned about about kids and screens is the impact on their social skills and and teens especially tweens because by the time they're older they're not so interested in talking to their parents hate to tell you that's <laughs> <laughs> um but when they're between about five and eleven they want contact they 
they want connection, so you should enjoy those years when they come. And kids talk about feeling ignored by their parents. So then, of course, if they have access to a device, then they'll retreat there too. So one thing that I recommend to families is about integrating um, digital wellness practices into the home, which I can talk about. If yes, I'd love that. Yeah, for sure. I think this is something that we all need more of. Because yep. even me, like I work with all adults and primarily women. And I tell them all the time, I'm like, even as we're working on sleep more, take care of yourself. And it's like, mm -hmm. where's your time getting lost in the evenings? And a lot of That's times right. it's being sucked in technology. I'm like, you need to put the phone away. Yeah. So, um, you know, for adults, definitely take a look at your weekly screen screen report. If you have an iPhone, you can set it up to get your weekly screen report. I always kind of cringe when Sunday comes and I get my little number and then I watch myself like coming up with uh, justifications like, well, I was listening to podcasts and I was working. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people <laughs> are spending six, seven, eight more hours a day looking at these devices. Now, of course, some of it is work and some of it is, I don't know, is social interactions, but that's a lot of hours. And if you think about feeling like you're running out of time to get to the other things that matter in your life, it comes back to balance. Like there's only 24 hours in a day. So you need some sleep like seven or eight hours. Yes. Maybe you can get by on six, but most adults can't get by on more than that. I mean, unless than that, you know, you have, if you're working outside the home, you have your job, you have your family, you have your kids, where are there eight hours to spend on the phone? <laughs> I have right? no idea. Right. So um, some recommendations in terms of uh, helping the children being a good model is so important. So if you're going to talk to your kids about their screen time, then you need to be able to also say, and it's, I think it's fine to be honest with them and say, these things are a lot of fun and a lot of people like spend a lot of time looking at them, but we have some other things that matter too. You don't have, we don't need to demonize the technology. It's here and it's not going away. And you know what? More is coming. Who knows? Think about, right. how the, think about how the iPhone has changed in the last 10 years. Who knows Remarkable. what's coming? Who knows what's coming next? But you know, we know that more is coming. So learning how to have a healthy, balanced relationship with these technologies is key. So start out with there's certain places or times or situations where the phones are not welcome. And like when you say it like in our family, because that's important, because they may go to someone else's house or there's two parents in different homes or at grandma's house or something, you say, in our house, the rule is no devices at the table, at the meal mealtime. It's so important to reserve some space for actual interaction, mm -hmm. not mediated interaction where you're only half present. Yes. Now here's a hard one, no phones in the bedroom. I think it's harder for adults than it is for little ones. With little ones, you can simply make sure that it's not there in the bedroom. As they get older, that may take some negotiation, but if you start with them young, they just learn that's, that's how it is. Like we used to smoke in public, everywhere, on airplanes and in restaurants. And mm -hmm. I don't know what it's like in Oklahoma, but all that is banned in New York now. People can get used to having a rule where you just don't do certain things in certain places. And you mentioned getting enough sleep. 
the reason to get the phone out of the bedroom is to help people's brains settle down. Yes. And so that you don't begin the day with a blast of input from the outside world. So one of my practices is first thing in the morning, I do not lift my phone. I have a good old fashioned alarm clock. And they still exist, everyone. They do. And if, <laughs> if, Alexa, you know, if Alexa lives at your house or Google uh, Assistant or any one of those, you can have that machine wake you up um, so that your first gesture is not to immediately dive in there. Um, at least reserve a few minutes, like go to the bathroom, have a cup of tea, meditate, <laughs> stretch, yes. connect with the other people that you live with um, or connect with yourself. And, uh, you know, wait until you're ready to invite stimulus from the outside world in. And then the same at the end of the day, shut the device down like at least 15 minutes, a half an hour before you go to bed so that you stop having more outside input. And you can, again, check in with yourself at the end of the day. And you can model that for kids so that they just get used to that's the rule. Another thing, do family activities without media involvement. So go for walks with no one on their phone. Go, you know, hiking or camping and have at least part of that time where the devices are away. So they learn how to be in a place without always being online. Yes. And then, you know, look up and notice the world around you. And that's where mindfulness can come in. I, I, have, I have a dog and I'm sure many of your listeners have dogs or other pets and animals are wonderful for helping to bring you in the present because that's where they are all the time. So like when I take my dog for a walk, have a commitment to not checking my phone. That's great. So I can walk and be with him. So these are some examples. Those are great. The one thing that said, that it, it hit me that you said actually be with the people that are in your house <laughs> or be with yourself. And it's like we wake up and we're immediately inviting, inviting all these other people. Into our world, that's right. And you are choosing to be with this person that you're with that's living in your house and your kids, and it's like be with them first. Those are the ones that's that really right. matter instead of reaching for a device, right? Because you know, so you have little ones one day, you know, they'll grow up and go off and. I guarantee you, you won't say, oh, I wish I'd spent more time on my phone before they grew up. <laughs> no, it happens right. so quick. And I've already noticed in them that it's like with my, with my son, he will look at me and, you know, if I'm trying to sit there and work and return messages or do something on my phone, he will get my phone now and actually take it from me and he mm -hmm. puts it down. And I'm like, okay, that's your cue. Well, like, Wow. Get off because he knows like he's like, hey, I need your attention. And he's nonverbal. And so like that's his verbal cue to me of saying, like, hey, I need something. And that always hits me really hard. Because I'm like, okay, you know, get off. He's trying to communicate with you. And that's beautiful. It is. And it, but 
it, it can make me feel really sad, but it also makes me really happy. <laughs> All these mixed emotions at one, but it's like, it makes me sad because I'm like, pay attention. We need to pay mm -hmm. attention as parents, as moms and say, okay, this is what they need from us. And if we're constantly just looking down or not making that eye contact with them, how are we supposed to actually know what they're craving, what they need, mm -hmm. what they want? And that goes Absolutely. for our own relationships. With oh, our, oh yes. <laughs> like, right. With our, with our partners, with our friends, yes. you know, if you, if you get together with your girlfriends and everybody's on their phones, what's the point? That, me and you both threw <laughs> our hands up at the same time. Why are we even wasting our time here? Right. Yeah. So, you know, the way I like to say it, cause it's a sort of fun little rhyming thing, you know, we need to become intentional with our attention. Where are you putting your attention? It's the most it's now the most valuable commodity in our economy. Everybody's trying to get our attention. Look at me, buy this, vote for me, right? Like there's a nonstop onslaught of cognitive stimulus coming at us 24 seven. One of the few things we have some choice over internally is wh where are you putting your attention? Like right now I'm focusing on you. In order to do that, I'm ignoring and blocking stimulus from the rest of the world so I can be present with you. And that's how important things happen when people pay attention. You can't get anything important done if you're not paying attention. Oh, I love Including that. raising children. Oh, yes, um, truth there all the way. So where can, where can my listeners get in contact with you? Where can they find out more about Carrots and Cake? Okay, great. So um, I'm happy to say that your listeners can get um, 60 days free. There's a free, you can get a free download of Carrots and Cake. So if you go to carrotsandcake.com, Carrots and Cake all, you know, smushed together, one word, <laughs> carrotsandcake.com. And they should use the special discount code MOBB. Okay, right, awesome. For mob mentality. Yeah. Um, and there will be, you know, instructions about the download and how to get it set up. Um, and if you have any questions, you know, there'll, there'll be contact, a way to contact them if you have more questions. And then if people want to find me, um, I'm at GwynethJackwayPhD.com. So my whole name and then the letters PhD, since I have one of those. Um, <laughs> you worked uh, hard for one of those. Uh, yeah, long time ago. So, and um, that's especially for people in the New York area, um, um, in terms of the digital wellness workshops that I offer. Um, and I'm happy to talk to parents if they want some more guidance. That is great. Thank you so much. Can't wait to check out Carrots and Cake, get connected with you even further. I know this is going to be super useful and valuable to so many parents out there, moms. I hope dads are listening to this too. Because we all need it. Thank you so much for joining us today. And everything will be posted in the description to be able to get in touch with Gwyneth and then also to get in touch with Carrots and Cake. Get your free trial. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sasha.